The glory of young men is their strength, gray hair the splendor of the old. Proverbs 20, 29. Hello and welcome again to the Faithful Fatherhood Podcast. I say welcome again. If this is your first time finding us, we're thrilled that you're here. We're glad you found us. And I know you're going to be empowered by the conversation that we're going to have today with our special guest, Jock Murray. Jock, welcome to the program. Thanks, Brett. Glad to be here. It's good to have you here. I'll set the stage a little bit more for Jock and give you some background on who he is and why he is here. But kind of spoiler alert, we're talking about the sage chapter in John Eldridge's Fathered by God. So if you have been following along with the podcast and listened to some of the other episodes, you know that we've been periodically talking about this book and just the stages of the masculine journey. And today we're going to talk about the sage and sort of pick Jock's brain on concepts around that. What's it like to father adult children, to be a parent to adult children, and more than that, to pour into others in the later years, pulling on our experience and our wisdom from a life well-lived. So we'll talk more about that. We'll circle back. I do want to sort of tip the hat to Perry, who is not here with us. Uh, Perry is my co-host on the show. I I can attest to the fact firsthand that he is alive and well. We actually just climbed Mount LeCant together this past weekend, which was a fun experience with our kids. And so we're actually going to do an episode here coming up soon where we sort of recap that and share some lessons learned and some interesting things that happened. So uh, be on the lookout for that episode. So Perry Perry had something come up business-wise. He couldn't be with us this morning, uh, but he'll be back again next week. But we do have Jock here. So when I was thinking about the sage and just praying about who to talk with about this, Jock just just came to mind. He, by the way, is my uncle, so that's how I know him personally. I've spent a lot of Thanksgivings together and family trips together, getting to know him and know what he's about and knowing his heart and really what what his intentions are with his own family and his business and really just how he lives his life. And I just thought he would just have some interesting insight and wisdom to share with you guys about how to be a sage and what it looks like to be a sage. And and so that's what we're going to do. Uh, Jock, before I throw it to you, I think it was interesting when I was sort of looking at your LinkedIn profile uh, in sort of preparation for this. And by the way, Jock is the, he's the founder and president of his own consulting firm, the Jock Murray Group. But he also does so much by way of volunteering. He's on the board and he's an elder of his church, Southbridge Fellowship. He's the leadership development facilitator for uh facilitator for Sigma Chi, the Sigma Chi fraternity. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit as well. So he's got his hands in a lot of different areas. But what I thought was really interesting, the very first that came up, uh, thing that came up, Jock, when I was looking at your LinkedIn profile was actually a quote that you shared on somebody else's post, just like literally within the last week, a quote by George Bernard Shaw. And I'm going to read it because I think it's so perfect. It literally encapsulates what I think the sage is all about. And it speaks to the fact that like, this is what you're about because this is what came to your mind in response to this guy's post. The quote goes, you know, quote, I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. For the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. And then it goes on. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a sort of splendid torch which I've got held up for the moment. And I want to make sure it burns as brightly as possible before handing it on to future generations. End quote. 
And I love that. I mean, that's that's what that's what John Eldridge is talking about when he's talking about the sage. That's that's what you're all about, right? Handing it on to future generations. So I would just maybe throw it off to you as we kick off this conversation, Jock. Like, why that quote? Why does that speak to you? And sort of, what's your philosophy about sort of the stage that you are in life right now? Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny that you brought that up. Uh, that is a, a client of mine posted, and and he is uh, director of sales for for a company uh, and a strong believer uh, and a, a strong servant leader. Uh, and I forget exactly what his post was. He posts pretty regularly with just some thoughts, and, and he and I are so aligned uh, on that. And uh, and it just prompted me to really think because that's that is how I view things. You know, I uh, another quote I love is you know my my goal is to plant trees under whose shade I'll never sit. Uh, you know, and so it really is about uh, you know, about serving, uh, and that's you know kind of how I approach approach life. Have you always approached life that way? Because as we think about, so it's interesting, John Eldridge, you know, acknowledges right at the outset in his chapter, he goes, look, first of all, I'm not a sage myself. I would actually incur, I would actually consider him a sage now. I think he wrote this book maybe a decade or so ago. So he's 10 years further along and he's older. And I, I would say he's probably entered the sage years himself. But at the time he wrote that, he said, look, I think the thing with sages is they don't really view themselves as sages. So is this like a weird concept for you to even be considered a sage? Like, do you think you're still more of a king? I mean, you're still working, you're still consulting, you're still doing the whole king thing with your family. And yet I've invited you on here to sort of be the sage. You know, what is your thought process around that? Yeah. And, you know, it, 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 it's funny to ask that because yeah, I, I was not, I've read Wild at Heart, you know, so I know I'm familiar with Eldridge, but I had never read Father by God till you sent me uh, a copy of it. So I decided to, you know, read it, uh, read, read the whole thing. And, and, it, and it took me, you know, down a interesting path as I was not only just reading it, but thinking about the conversation you and I uh, were, were going to have. And so, you know, you asked if I've always sort of viewed life that way. And I'd say, absolutely not. Uh, you know, I, I spent the first 30 years of my life, you know, just focused on me, uh, you know, and, um, uh, and so it's been a slow evolution that God has, has done with me. Uh, you know, I, you know, if you look at it, back over my life that, you know, I, I grew up, you know, uh, my dad, strong Christian, uh, we, we belonged to, you know, first Methodist church. That was back when all the churches had a number, uh, <laughs> on them. And this, you know, we grew up in this small factory town. Uh, they have, they had a number, but like, have you ever been to the 10th Methodist church? It seems like they're all first. <laughs> yeah. Nobody's going to be 10th, right. uh, maybe second, uh, <laughs> but that's, that's it. And, um, uh, you know, so I, I grew up in a love, love that church and I, you know, learned to love God in that, in that church, uh, was there all the time, whenever, you know, we, we could be involved in, in everything. Uh, but then I, you know, when I went off to college, I sort of put that all aside, uh, never, never stopped believing, loved going to church when I was home, uh, but didn't, didn't think much about it. Uh, and we, uh, I, I met Laura Ann, my wife at, at, Kentucky, uh, where we went to school, uh, and she was kind of the same way. She grew up in a, a Christian home, and but we both sort of just lived life for ourselves and had God right on the side uh, in case we needed Him uh, there. And uh, we were living in South Florida, and we, uh, my oldest son Trent was born, and we kind of decided, you know, we better start going to church because that's what you do when you have kids. And we went back to those little Methodist church. Uh, there on uh, Jupiter Jupiter Island, and we, we started attending there periodically. 
you know, kind of depended on how late we were up Saturday night, whether yeah. we were <laughs> or not, and you know how tired Lorraine was from uh, you know the the, the week. Uh, but we would go periodically, and um, uh, when we then we moved back to Illinois. Uh, from Florida. I was working for Abbott Laboratories at the time. Their corporate headquarters was just outside of north of Chicago, uh, about 45 minutes. And I moved back there and we joined a Presbyterian church there. And I got in this Sunday school class with uh, these, I guess it was probably four or five couples. And the, these couples were the first couples Lorraine and I had ever met that were just their whole lives revolved around serving the Lord. We we really didn't even know that's what you're supposed to do. Yeah, the people live like that. Yeah, we thought they were nuts, quite frankly. A couple of stories of things they did, which, you know, now I look back and we're just acts of faith that we just thought were a little weird. We thought they were a little too much. But, you know, hanging around those people, and I got into a uh, the men in there would meet uh, once a week, you know, in the church basement and have a Bible study. And, uh you know, that's where God began to show me what a life of faith really looked like was through those through those young men that were, were our age. And, you know, I was probably in my early 30s at that time. Uh, and that was really the beginning of me, you know, learning to grow and, and, and live for uh, for the Lord and, and start to shape kind of how I view the world and, and life. And I want to talk more about that transition, going from living a life for yourself to living a life for the Lord and how that incorporates into your work, into your family life. But just thinking about your timeline, you're talking about that happening in your early tw- early 30s. Your dad had already passed by that point, right? So let's go back a little bit. Tell me a little bit more about your childhood, what, what your dad's influence was in your life, maybe some fun stories about you know, what kind of father he was, but then... But then he died when you were in your early 20s. And so you never really had a sage, so to speak, present in your own life to sort of father you through that period. And now I hear you talking about finding that and experiencing that in that church environment. I think maybe that's sort of a God appointment, which is really cool. But but take us back, you know, tell us a little bit more about your father and then what it was like losing him when you were still a young man. Yeah, yeah. so, you know, grew up in, in northern Ohio and, you know, I read the biography of Wilbur Wright and Wilbur Norville Wright. And one of the quotes out of there was Wilbur Wright said, if you want to live a great life, pick out a good set of parents and be born in Ohio. <laughs> and that's what I did. Uh, and I think that's probably why I've I've lived the life I've lived. And uh, so I had wonderful, wonderful parents. Um, and dad was uh, older. I, I actually don't know how old he was. I'm the youngest of five. My oldest sister's 13 years older than me. Uh, So your dad was a little bit older. He was not an athlete. He was not an outdoorsman. Um, And so, you know, especially when you read, you know, Wild at Heart or Eldridge, you know, Father by God, it's all about because that's who Eldridge is, uh, you know, the outdoors and and things like that. Um, And so we didn't do that kind of stuff. Uh, But I think the thing I remember, but it's just that dad was always there. uh, you, you know, I can remember, so I ran, I, I wrestled, um, my older brother got me into wrestling when I was in third grade. Uh, and he, you know, got me a pair of tights, taught me a couple of moves. He was in high school at the time and a, a very accomplished, you know, wrestler and got me a pair of tights and, and taught me a couple of moves and entered me in an AAU meet where I got trounced by, you know, these kids that have been doing this for forever, but I got a passion for it. Uh, and wrestled. And then I played, you know, I, 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 
played football and ran track up through like sophomore year and those kind of things. But I remember track, especially because sophomore year, we were running track in the big high school stadium, uh, you know, large, large football stadium. And of course, no one came to the track meet. Uh, but I, I would remember and this sort of epitomizes uh, my, my memory of dad is he would be up in the stands in his suit. Right. This would have been, uh, you know, mid 70s uh you know so he was he was a salesman for procter gamble so he'd be up there in his suit uh and he'd have his work spread out because there's plenty of room right because nobody's attracted me he'd have his work spread out on the bleacher next to him and i'd watch him and when the gun would go off he'd look up from his work see if it was me running um, it wasn't and he'd go back and he'd do some more of his of his work uh and but you know he wasn't going to miss that yeah. uh you know so he obviously had a little flexibility because he was a you know field salesperson and you know but but he was there at every track meet uh for the one you know race that i got to run out of three hours of being at a track meet but he was there the the whole time um yeah you know always at my always at my wrestling meets um you know to just supported and, and that's what i think it was they supported everything you know that i did and i was a you know i was had a rotten streak in me i don't even know if you know these these stories but i got in trouble all the time in elementary school for fighting okay i fought all the time and so i had to leave the public school uh in elementary school uh because i got in so much trouble fighting and uh, my parents you know they just supported me and they actually paid this is back in seven they paid for me to go to this private prep school hmm. Um, which who knows how they could have afforded that. Uh, you know, now that I'm a parent, I realize, oh my gosh, uh, you know, and I went there and I got in a lot of trouble and a lot of fights and that sort of thing. Um, yet, you know, they stood by me and I finally convinced them if I, cause I wanted to wrestle in middle school. So if I came back to middle school and wrestled that I wouldn't get in any more trouble. Uh, and you know, they let me probably wanted to quit paying that tuition as well. Um, and I came back to middle school and started wrestling on the wrestling team there and pretty much stayed out of trouble from, there was a few incidences, but pretty much stayed out of trouble, uh, from them on. But, you know, just, you know, they believed in me and, um, yeah, they were just always there. Yeah. And he was so a state. You know, that's kind of what I remember. Yeah. I, I mean, that's huge because oftentimes when we look back on it, you might not even remember specific instances, although, although I love your story of him sitting up in the bleachers, but but he was there. And there and that provides a certain comfort and stability and safety for a young boy well, as well. Well, that's that, that's that boyhood stage that, that, that he talks about. You know, I knew um, I was loved. I knew I was valued, you know, without – all those words, you know, um, you know, being used, they told me they loved me, but you know, there wasn't a, I can't, I don't think they were intentionally trying to build my self-esteem, but I, you know, home was safe. Yeah. You know, home was dependable. Mom and dad were dependable. Um, you know, and I, I, and I think that laid that solid foundation that, that Eldridge talks about in the boyhood stage. And that speaks also to, to just his desire to be present in your life. I mean, it, you know, you were the fifth child. So he was older, right? You can almost run out of steam a little bit. <laughs> you, know, you get tired, oh, yeah. not as invested, yeah. but but he was. And it was important for him to be there and put his work on hold to be there for your mates. So I love that. And and so now you're entering college. You go off to the University of Kentucky. Do you remember, uh, I mean, what was your relationship with him and how active was he in your life sort of during the Kentucky years? And then um, remind me, when did he pass away? 
Well, he passed away uh, when I was 24, um, at six months before my wedding. Okay. Uh, before long, so he had been, uh, you know, he died of lung cancer, um, and you know, was basically diagnosed sick and died in a year. Uh, was what you know was what we had, um, and that was a couple of years after I had graduated uh, from from University of Kentucky. Uh, you know, I, I would say the same thing. He, they, they were just supportive of the direction that I wanted to go. Uh, so I thought I was going to wrestle in college and um, I was, you know, I could have wrestled D2, D3. I certainly wasn't good enough to wrestle, uh, wrestle D1. So, you know, but that was the plan. I wanted to go somewhere, you know, maybe I could get a little bit of money so we could afford to go to private school, um, you know. And, and so we looked at all these smaller, you know, smaller schools where I could probably wrestle. And then uh, midway through my senior year, I, I just got burned out. I'd been losing I'd been, I'd lost thousands of pounds since the third grade, you know, I was, I was, you know, wrestling 126, seventh grade through 12th grade. And so, you know, on Monday I'd weigh 140 and on Saturday night, seven, I'd weigh 126. It's miserable. You do that for all those years. And, you know, you just, I just realized, I, I don't want to do this anymore. This is, this has been my whole life. I need to expand myself. And uh, I actually quit the wrestling team in the middle of my, in the middle of my senior year. And, um, th- you know, dad was supportive of that, whatever it is that, you know, you want to do. And I finally decided to go back and I, uh, the, the 132 pounder was state champ. The 138 pounder was a guy that I just felt like, you know, here just because I couldn't make my way, I couldn't take his spot. So there was some young freshman at 145. So I said, All right, I'll take his spot. So I, uh, I wrestled 145 and had a blast. Yeah. Right? Cause you had to actually oh, eat cheeseburgers the night before. Oh my God. <laughs> it was, you know, you didn't have to lose weight. You know, I, I got better at wrestling cause I wasn't just tired all the time. And, uh, anyway, but then I went, I, I, I did okay in the sectionals and then I went to the districts, which is how you qualify for state and met some big boy that came down from 165 and he just crushed me and that ended my career. So suddenly I had nowhere to go to college. Because there was no point in going to these small schools we couldn't afford if I wouldn't get a wrestle. Uh, and uh, so we just decided my sister was at UK at the time. She seemed like she was doing okay. So I thought, all right, well, I'll go there. That was my entire college uh, thought process, right? You know, and 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 they supported that. Uh, and, and then I decided, you know, this was back in the 70s when nobody did this. I was a parks and recreation major, I decided I wanted to be. Uh, you know, now that's a that's a, a real thing and people do that. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and, and they said, all right, that's what you want to do, you know, do that. You know, I, uh, when I graduated, I went to work for the Boy Scouts uh, and then I left the Boy Scouts and I went to work for Sigma Chi. And, you know, there was never, you know, it's time to grow up, time to get a real job. How are you going to support your wife working for a fraternity? Cause we actually got married while I was working for, uh, for Sigma Chi. And, uh, you know, they were just, they were just there helping me be the best version of myself that I could be. And I think that is kind of how I approach parenting, you know, as well. And, you know, I, I don't think they were intentionally teaching me that, but I think I caught that from them. Well, let's flesh that out a little bit because, yeah, I'm curious, would it have been helpful if, if your dad or somebody had been a little bit more intentional, perhaps, hey, this isn't a great major for you, or think about your future, or, or was it helpful to sort of be able to figure some of that stuff out on your own? And, and are there things that you feel like you did miss out on with your dad not being there 
after age 24 that you are now intentionally trying to do and be present with your own kids since you are there as your kids are passing through that stage themselves? Yeah. I don't know the answer to any of those questions uh, because they're all hypothetical. Right. But as I was just reading the book and thinking about it, as I had not really considered what did I, because I don't feel like I missed anything. Um, yeah, I missed him, but not having had a, an adult father, you know, I don't know what I missed about those relationships that now I'm beginning to have with my, my oldest son uh, is 33, daughter's um, 30. Uh, other daughter is uh, uh, 27. Uh, so those are the ages of my kids now. So I'm I'm in that stage that I never had with with my father. But the, the only thing I really wonder about is is my values weren't very strong when I entered the business world, and I sort of learned to um, approach things from my peers, from my bosses. And that wasn't very good. There's things I probably look back on and feel like I didn't approach well, wish I hadn't have said or done, uh, you know, a lot of those things. And, you know, those evolved, uh, again, sort of uh, as my faith e evolved. And, uh, you know, looking back, I'm, I'm sure my father had strong values and, and lived those values. Uh, you know, would that have come sooner if I'd have had somebody to, challenge me to you know, because I didn't have anybody really at that point I wasn't didn't have strong faith didn't have men of faith around me you know just had all my really successful co-workers say you know we're a bunch of salespeople, um you know and that's where I was getting my value system from some of which was okay and certainly a lot of it has formed me in in a good way and a lot of it I've had to you know kind of approach I approach my work very differently today than I did early on That'd be the one area I wonder about. How? How did you shift or acquire different, uh, and perhaps I would even say maybe not better, but just but just maybe more God-given values? Because I find it interesting that you're saying this because you're like the values leadership guy. I mean, for those listening, yeah, he's a consultant. He teaches leadership, leadership development for big corporations, Sigma Chi, et cetera, but uh, but all from the through the lens of values-based leadership, right? And right. and serving the world in a positive way. And so did it come from your your transition as you became more faith-based? Were there other mentors who did step into your life? Were there other people who did sort of play a father figure for you in those roles in your early 30s and late 30s? Where where did that evolution come from? Yeah. yeah you know, you think about mentoring. You know, I mean, I you know, we typically think of mentoring as, you know, a, a, a live one-on-one -on -one relationship, you know, with somebody somebody else. Um, I, I didn't have a lot of those early, early on. Uh, and, and a lot of, I think how I grew was study. Uh, so I, you know, I, I, I read the lives of, of you know, the, the works of, uh, of value-based people. And as my faith began to grow, you know, I, I think it's like once I fully accepted my identity as a child of God, I didn't really, I, you know, that began, you know, later in my thirties. And, and as I accepted that, um, it's not about me anymore, right? You know, my my you know my identity is not in my family, my work, my possessions, my money, my health. Um, you know, when when that's where I was, it was about protecting those things. 
and 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 not losing them. So you know that's what it guides everything. And once once you know your identity secure, right? Um, you began shifting from protecting my interests to uh, to serving others, to growing, uh, and and so you know I, as I began to really study, you know what it is that makes a godly man, uh, and and as we you know one of the courses I teach the lead is you know the leadership journey or another version is called horizons but it's a values-based leadership program and I got introduced to that in 1999 uh you know kind of around this time when I was beginning to 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 change my focus in in life uh and the whole concept is there that you know really what are your core values who who you you know your core values are really who you are uh and you know, if you're honest most of the time, then you're not honest, right? You know, honesty isn't one of your core values, right? <laughs> uh, and as I identified sort of those core values and, and and understood that concept, that that's who I want to be, I'd say when when I when I sort of outlined my so my five core values in order of importance are, uh, you, you know, glorify God, uh, honesty, courage, uh, and service. I, in in that order uh, are my are my five values, and so I really began to say, how do I live those values? How does it become who who I really am? And so I, for me, it was really an intentional process of discovery uh, that I that, that I did, not because someone was advising me, but because and it's clearly it was God. God introduced me to these these concepts, uh, and then as I merged this sort of secular leadership training, you know, with what I was learning about him, I, I think it all came together. This is really interesting. And I think this is something tangible and practical that people can do, right? People can set their own values. I'm thinking out loud here a little bit. Is it okay to have different values for business than you have in your family life? And the reason I ask that is I've done that exercise before in business. I've thought through, who do I want to be at my core in business? What are the important values for my company, for, for how I conduct myself in the business world? But I've, I've recently done that as a father. Who, how do I want to be with my kids? Patient. I am patient. I am present You know, with my and And these I am statements, internalizing them at truth. Not necessarily the way I always am, but I want to strive to be more patient. I want to strive right. to be more present with my kids. And there are a handful of those words, those adjectives that I want to define me as a father. Um, I mean, what are your initial thoughts on, on that? Is it okay to have five different words for your business versus as a family? Or is it really just five core values that just are who you are at your core? And it's then how you show up in every facet of your life. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is the latter. I mean, if, 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 you know who you are doesn't change from work to to home so you're you know you're going to you're going to approach everything in life you're going to approach how you're a husband how you raise your kids how you treat your neighbors how you run your business based on who you are as your core values uh, you might have an additional value um uh, for instance my daughter Peyton is in the equestrian world, uh, very dangerous world, right? Around horses and animals and, and safety is one of her core values, right? I mean, everything's about safety. If it's not safe, we're not going to do it. You know, if, if we could make more money or have more students, you know, or get them out in the ring faster, but it's not safe, then that's not an option. 
you know, we got to find another way to be more profitable. Uh, and so I think, you know, if you run a factory, if you're around livestock, you know, safety might be a value that you don't think about other times, uh, or just might be one of your core, your core values. So I think, you know, you might have an additional value. Accuracy might, you know, be very important at work if whatever you do is has to be precise uh, and that sort of thing. But in general, you don't have different sets of values for different circumstances. You are who you are. Let's apply this then to parenting adult kids. And let's get back to that because you mentioned values might be one area where you could have benefited from your father being around in your adult years. Is that, are these conversations you have with your own kids? How are you initiating, to use John Eldridge's words, your adult kids with respect to values? Do you try to intentionally speak into their lives if you see areas where, hey, I, I see this as a potential growth area for you? Or do you sort of let them come to you? What's your inter- interaction with your kids around things like values and having these important conversations? Yeah. I'll tell you about me, and I don't know if this is right. But it's but it's me, right? Because I think we all approach things. I mean, Eldridge writes this book, and if I tried to parent the way he does by taking my kids mountain climbing, we'd all be dead, right? <laughs> so that's not a good way for me to, to do it. Uh, but you know, but 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 he is saying, you know, this is the thing you need to do. It's about adventure. It's about you know, and and there's truth in that. But but that's him looking at the world through his. So the truths underlying that. You know, my father didn't take me on adventures. We went, you know, fishing with a bobber once in a while. Uh, and that was about as adventuresome, you know, as we as we got. And yet he instilled those those, you know, things in me that are, that are helping me as, as a father. So my personality is I'm an introvert. I'm analytical. Um, I approach interactions by asking questions rather than telling directly um i um uh, you know that's that's kind of how i approach my work that's how i approach sales uh in 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 that it's good that's good i think uh so somebody like me never regrets what they say i don't ever regret something i say because i've thought it through completely nothing comes out of my mouth that i've thought through right what i regret is that i I'll say, you know, I probably should have said something. I shouldn't have stayed silent. I probably should have spoken up in there. Uh, I never said, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I probably, you know. And so that then is how sort of how I approach life in both its strengths and its areas where I need to grow. That's why courage is one of my core values is and that courage is not the courage of you know, I hope I would run into a burning building to save a child. You know, I don't know. I've never been in that situation. I hope I have that kind of courage. But for me, it's the courage to speak the truth when the truth needs to be to be spoken. And and, and interesting to the to your point previously, I chose that value when that didn't describe me. Hmm. I, in other words, as I was kind of selecting who I wanted to be, uh, I don't think I was any of those things. I think I'm a lot more of them now. Uh, and that's why the number of values has to be few. I, you can't have 20 core values. You know, four, five, three, you know, you really can focus on those and say, you know, as I'm as I'm making a decision, does this align with my with my values? Right. And 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 you do that slowly over 30 years and you're gonna be a different, you're gonna be a different person. Yeah. Um so 
to your question, I don't give a lot of advice. Uh, and there's probably times and places I should. Um, but my, you know, I, I, I wait for people to ask. Um, you know, I try to um, live my values. And then when people seek my input, I give my input. Um, and usually in the form of questions, you know, ask them to think, you know, have they thought of this? Have they thought of this? What will happen if, if this occurs? How will you handle handle that? Uh, and so, I, you know, I think that's a fault I have. I think I, I could have given more advice uh, to my kids. Um, I think we, I'd say the other area where we was we, I'm a big believer in teachable moments, you know, and so I do look for those and I'm more intentional you know, when something happened to one of the kids, disappointment, failure, you know, got caught in, you know, living the way they shouldn't have lived. You know, we, I, I, I try to take those very intentional teachable moments because I just, you know, I, I know I didn't listen to my parents very much, you know, within, you know, that, you know, I would, you know, I'd say, you know, that was the opposite of honest back then when I was, you know, high school, college, I tell them whatever they wanted to hear. And then I go do whatever I wanted. It was a very good way it seemed to work. <laughs> right. You know, they didn't bug me. I probably didn't worry much about me because, you know, they had no idea, especially when I was in college where you know, they didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and, and so um, I'm less about giving advice and more about waiting to be asked. And you call you you call that a fault, but or maybe that's not the word you just used, uh, but a growth area. But I don't necessarily know if that's true. I mean, J John Eldridge at least suggests that that's the way a lot of sages are. You're not, you know, the people who are constantly telling people what to do and voicing their opinion. I mean, are they really sages or are they just kind of, you know, high on themselves and whatever? So. Um, so my encouragement to the listener and really to myself is I've actually been trying to be more intentional about this myself is is asking, is seeking. Right. And so if if you're Jock Murray's kids listening to this episode, but no, if you're if you're anybody listening to this, like talk to your dad. Ask your dad some questions. Uh when you're when you're wrestling with financial decisions or what should I should I quit my job and, and go into this other area? Like, should I take the risk of starting my own business? Should I like what, how should I handle this with my kids? Yeah, we could we could maybe figure some of that stuff out on our own. We could certainly and should turn to God for some of those. And we're going to kind of go that direction here in a moment with this conversation. But, but what if you just ask your dad or your mom? But like, what if what if you actually do seek the advice of a sage? Yeah. Because yeah. they have wisdom to impart. Ask. They're not just going to – they're not going to meddle. Sometimes it almost can feel like they're, you're meddling in your kids' lives. I need to let them sort of live their lives. I don't want to – my mom's always saying this. You know, She's always saying, well, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I don't I, I don't want to meddle. I don't want to be bothersome. Well, you're my mom or you're my dad. You're not bothersome. Like speak up. But if that's not going to happen, it's my job to ask. All right. So that's a little tangent. But I will let me, say – Let me oh, just touch ahead. on something, something you made me think about is, is you know, that – as you talk about your 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 mom and, and then you know Lori and I talk about the same the same thing because I think parenting shifts from control when you've got you know when you got a baby you know you control them keep them from running in the street you know shove food in their mouth <laughs> so they'll eat you know so it's it's it shifts from control to influence yes uh, and you know I think that 
starts earlier rather than later, that, that shift to influence. And of course, when they're adults, it's, it's all influence. They don't have to do anything you know, that I, that I tell them to do. Uh, and, and so it's all about, it's all about influence. Uh, and I believe that unwanted advice isn't a good way to influence, you know, someone, you know, you shut down. And so it's about how you say it. And so the sage is only partly about wisdom. It's it, the bottom line is about loving, wanting to help others. And so if I force my opinions on others, that's really more about me. Yes. Than it is about, than it is about you. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of about, I, my focus has to be, what do you need to know? Right. And, and can I, and are you in a place where you're open to receiving that from me? Because if you're not, what's the, and I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, my, my work as a coach and, and that sort of thing. I'm not going to coach, you can't coach somebody who doesn't want to be coached. Uh, and, you know, uh, so, so I, th- I think that's it. So I, it's not that, that this approach is a weakness. Your strengths are always your weaknesses you know, used in the, in the wrong way. And so, you know, we're, so I'm, I'm pretty good at, at waiting patiently for people to seek my advice, pretty good at that. I'm pretty good at asking questions and listening. That's what introverts do. Uh, so that just comes naturally to, to, to me, you know, my growth area is when something needs to be said, you know, at that time to, to say it. And the hope is that you have had the type of relationship with your kids along the way that when they're adults, they still have that relationship where they want to seek out your advice, talk with you, come home for Christmas and Thanksgiving, have those conversations to where you have earned the right and ability to still have that influence in their lives. Got a text this morning at eight o'clock from one of my children uh, asking if Lori and I are available to do some interview prep. Nice. Tonight. And so that would be, you know, class. They, they, they do seek our advice, but they seek our advice on the things that they believe, you know, we, we can help them with, that they're comfortable with. You know, one of the results of, you know, I mean, uh, of, you know, I think one of the things we we're very intentional about in raising the kids was preparing them for adulthood, uh, you know, being able to make, make decisions, to do risk analysis, to be able to communicate, to, you know, handle difficult situations. And, you know, I mean, and, and those were the teachable moments that, you know, and Lorianne was fabulous at, at, at this, you know, that we tried not to solve their problems for them. But, and, and, and that comes from back, you know, I, I remember this was my mother. I remember more than my dad, but, you know, she would always say, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, when I was afraid to give a speech or, you know, ask a girl out or something, you know, and she'd say, what's the worst that could happen? And I'd come up with some, you know, and she'd say, okay, you're right. That would be terrible. But what's the likelihood of that happening? Right. And now I realize, you know, they teach that at Harvard Business School, right? That's risk assessments. I mean, it's basically that. What's the worst that could happen? What's the likelihood of it happen? What can we do to mitigate that? That's what mom taught us. And, and so we caught that from mom and dad and, and very much do that with our kids. You know, so part of the price of that is they don't need my advice on every little problem they run into because they've learned to deal with it themselves. Yeah. And one specific example, maybe you can flesh out a little bit, you and I have talked about this, is finances. You acknowledge that 
you weren't great with your finances early on. And maybe that's during the phase where it was all about you and you hadn't been poured into and didn't have any wisdom from a sage that taught you to do it the right way. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about that. What did you mess up in your finances? And then how have you maybe been intentional by trying to equip your kids not to make some of the same mistakes that you made from, from a godly perspective? Yeah. Yeah. You know, as you, as you think, as I think about my father, um, one of the things I think he didn't do was intentionally teach me things that he was good at. Uh, one that comes to mind is I remember dad didn't have a lot of hobbies, but uh, when he was out on the road for Rock and Gamble, driving around these country roads to these country grocery stores, he would find antiques and either in the back of somebody's barn and he'd either get them for free or he'd buy them in our house. All our furniture was antique uh, that he refinished in our basement. So he'd bring home this old dining room table, this old chest of drawers, these old chairs, and he'd refinish them in the basement. And I watched him, but I don't know how to refinish furniture. He never actually taught me how to, how to do it. And I don't know why that was. I don't know whether he was really busy and in a hurry, right? It always takes longer when you try and have a kid help you, right? But, um, and he never taught me that. And the other one is, as I look back, when I used to go get my lunch money for school, he would pull out an envelope and give me $5 out of an envelope. And he put five kids through college. You know, mom was a teacher. He was a sales manager of Procter & Gamble. So, you know, they had a, a good, um, you know, income, but not a fabulous income. But obviously they knew how to manage money because, you know, I never felt like we didn't have, you know, what we needed. We lived in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. You know, college was easy. You know, I worked some, but you know, they paid for my college, gave me some spending money and things. So obviously they were very good at managing their limited resources, but never taught me anything about that. So when we got married, you know, I had a good job, Lauren had a good job, we didn't have any kids. Um, and so we just sort of lived life and spent all our money as it came in uh, and seemed to work, right? Because more would come than the, the, the next week. Uh, and, you know, we... We just lived like everybody else. In fact, we thought we were living a little bit better because everybody else was going on extravagant vacations and we weren't going on extravagant vacations. But, you know, we weren't saving. We were using credit cards, uh, you know, to some extent. And, and you know, we we just got to a point where I had a, and Lorianne, Lorianne um, stopped working outside the home when our youngest uh, went to uh, went to school. Um, and so, you know, it was all up to me. To bring in the uh, to bring in the income, and you know I've always been fortunate with a with a good income. You know, I mean, we, we weren't hurting for money, but we were broke, uh, and uh, you know we, we we had debt. We you know my 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 income because I have my own business is up and down like this, and so you know when clients didn't pay, we were in big trouble, uh, and it was stressful. Uh, you know we we weren't. Uh, tithing uh at that time you know we were giving some money to the church which i thought was a lot of money um but it was more like two thing i call it two percent instead ten percent um and uh somebody gave me the, the book the total money makeover by dave ramsey lauren i can't for the life of us remember who gave that to us or, or why but clearly it came from god i read it i said hey you ought to read this book and and things began to click and we began to understand there was a different way. There was a possibilities out there. We just didn't understand it. Two, two relatively intelligent people. Just no one had ever taught us. Uh, and uh, then we enrolled in financial peace 
university and we just we just made a commitment that we were going to get rid of all our get rid of all our debt and, and live differently and at that time right in the middle of that we decided that while we were doing that we were going to you know start giving away 10% of everything that we that we made even though we didn't have any money and just trust God in the, in the process and uh, we went through the financial peace university class um and you know and eventually paid off uh paid off all our debt uh, and and Laura Ann got so passionate about what that could do for people that she uh, you know, got certified, joined the Dave Ramsey organization and, you know, is, is a coach right now. And then we teach the the Financial Peace University, uh, you know, and, and it really was about realizing that we weren't, you know, got this all this. You know, it, it's about your identity that when we realize this, you know, this money isn't ours, you know, God's given it to us to, to steward. Uh, and are we being good stewards of it the way that we're living? And the answer was was clearly no. Uh, and so. He has, um, you know, used that clearly, certainly in Laura Ann's life, the number of people whose lives are changed because of the ministry that she does. Um, but even, you know, just even even myself, just the the people who we've been able to serve and help and, you know, uh, understand the when we're teaching that class, you know, right now we're teaching a financial peace class at church, you know, and the eight people that are in that class, we were where they are. Right? You know, we were feeling the things that they were feeling you know, you know, we understand it and it gives them hope, you know, as we say, you know, it's, it's, you know, there is hope on the other side. You can do this. We did. And so God has used that tremendously. And that's part of being the sage is pouring your wisdom earned by walking with God, real wisdom, real experience. It's one of the things John Eldridge talks about isn't, I had this experience from whatever, reading a book, but literally walking with God in certain areas you've poured that into hundreds maybe at this point of other people help to change their lives. Uh, have you been able to help your kids in that area? So, you know, one of the things is w- when you have a servant's heart, which I know you do, and you're involved in all these organizations and Sigma Chi and this and that and the other, it's like you're pouring into all these other people. Do you sometimes neglect your own family or have you brought your kids along and shared some of this financial wisdom with them? And have they taken to that message? Yeah. Yeah, that one for sure. Uh, that that all the kids, you know, are to some level or another um, following this process, and um, I think view money very differently than they would have if we hadn't gone through this. Uh, and a lot of that's Laura Ann more than it is me. Actually, the teaching of these, you know, budgeting and and all those kind of things. Um, but but we've been very intentional about that, and and you know. I, I do think their lives are in a different place than if they had simply learned personal finances from the world the way the way we we learned it. But you know, the other thing that you that that you know you, you you talk about is I think that with that you it comes humility. You know, it's you know I I didn't used to be as straightforward about how I got my finances in order. You know, as I as I am now, that was a you know, God had to humble me. And I think he, you know, he did. Uh, and to the point where, you know, th- there's no shame in the fact that I spent the first 30 years of my life as an idiot. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, I, it just is what it is. Uh, and so, you know, you know, God humbled me to where I can say, and I, I didn't used to say, you know, we screwed up and, 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 and God fixed it. And it wasn't us. 
uh, you know, and now we're equipped to be empathetic and, and you know, teach our kids and teach others these things. And, and that's always the way God redeems. You know, that, that my life is a whole story of God redeeming the first 30 years of being an idiot. Uh, every one of those things, you know, has been redeemed and used by him for me to serve others and to bring him bring him glory. Uh, it's just, you know, my, my, my whole life is a story of redemption. Which is incredible. And the question now becomes, how can others experience that same redemption? Is it hard to yield your heart to God? What does that process look like? And maybe what, what thoughts do you have from your own experience then to share about how we can go from living for ourselves to living from God and tape, taking some leaps of faith? I mean, I'm sure it wasn't easy to cut up credit cards and, and do the things that you had to do to deal with your finances, to deal with your family, to deal with your marriage, to, to work your business from a place of values instead of grabbing the money where you can grab it. All of the things that you've learned from and experienced in your own life, what, what is that process like to yield your heart to God, to walk that out in a way that others can do the same thing? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it's it, for my life, has been two things. It's it's prayer, and then putting yourself in a position where you got to rely on God. And over twenty years, right? That's the other thing. It's a slow for me. I, you know, for some people, it's not. But for me, it's been a slow, methodical process of prayer and putting myself in a position where I have to rely on God. And for me, it's been that combination. So I pray a lot. You know, I mean, I, I pray a lot and, and, and throughout the day, you know, I have I kind of have three intentional times. So every morning I, I start the day with prayer and reading, you know, reading scripture uh, at lunch. Uh, I don't know where I got this. Some book I was reading suggested called it the daily office. It might have been uh, I don't know what book it was. But so I have an alarm set for noon every day. It just says meditation. And that's also lunchtime, you know, uh, you know, so lunch. So I spend about 15 minutes right now. I'm uh, using uh, uh, my utmost for his highest, uh, the the devotional. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, it's just, just about 15 minutes of prayer and meditation to just recenter myself in the middle of the day to what, wh- why I'm really here and what the day is about. You know, I start the day with that. You know, then the more than at lunch, and then you know, last thing I do before I turn out the light is I've got my Bible in bedside and I read a little, little something right uh, out of there, give a little thought, um, and you know, short prayer and go to bed. Uh, but I have over the years, I, I pray a lot throughout the day. You know, as you know, I'm on the prayer chain at church, so when an email comes through, I just stop right then and take 30 seconds to pray for that person. You know, before a meeting, you know, I pray when. You know, something good happens. I'm thankful. And when I've got, you know, when somebody says to me in the middle of a meeting, you know, the problem is I find myself praying, give me wisdom, you know, give me wisdom. Um, and the and the one prayer that I pray almost every day is, you know, God, you know, this this I learned from uh, Henry Blackaby's um, uh, experiencing God. I don't even know if that's a, a out there anymore, but it was a workshop I went through in a book I read 15 years ago. But it, the, the prayer is, Lord, let me join you where you're, you're at work today. Let me join you where you're at work today and then give me the, you know, the, the, the wisdom and courage I need to, to jump in when you, when you give me that opportunity. 
and and then put yourself in a position where you you've got to rely on on God. And what happens is, I, I don't know how this works, but you know, as you ask God to use you, and then you make yourself available, and you get in a position, you get to actually see God work. That grows your faith. Uh, you know, it happened last night. Uh, we were teaching financial, you know, teaching financial peace. I prayed in the morning, God, let me join you where you work. Uh, in the other building is a little small group that was meeting. And this guy I'd never met before walks into financial peace, comes to the back of the room, the video's playing. And he says to me, hey, do you have keys to that building? The key that I'm supposed to use, I'm filling in for the leader. I don't know anything about how to get in these buildings and the key doesn't work. And I have master key, so I said, sure. So I went over, unlocked the door, and I said, hey, come get me at the end, because I got to lock it with this key. You know, we don't want to leave here with that. So he comes back, class is over. He says, hey, can you come help me lock it? I I locked the door, and then I say, hey, by the way, I've, I've met you. I'm Jock Murray. He introduces himself. I says, if you guys, you know, been coming for a long time. And he said, no, I've been here about a year. He says, but it's just me. He says, my wife won't come. And so anyway, he then begins to sort of tear up and share with me the tragedy that he's going through in his marriage at that moment, we prayed together. I gave him my phone number, said, Hey, add me to the list of people who here at church are there for you, you know? And, uh, and he said, which is interesting, you know, he said, you know what? I think God made that key not work. Hmm. Uh, he said, I think we were supposed to meet and I'm sure that's, that's true. Uh, and I've just got story after story where I just don't believe in coincidences uh, you know, I just believe that that's God and I get to be part of that. I don't know. That wasn't about me at all. It was all about what God's doing in his life. But I got to be some small part of that thing. The, the creator of the universe used me right in whatever he's doing in that, in that guy's, in that guy's life. And it goes back to one of your core values of courage though, stepping up and actually taking action. When you feel the prompting by God, I'm a big believer that, God's going to give more and show up more and give more opportunities to those who actually like do stuff with him and partner with him and actually respond to his call. If if you ask him and he sort of shows you an opportunity and then you stay silent or don't do anything or don't take action on the things that God prompted you, like how often is he going to come back to you? I don't know how all that works, but I just know in my own life that's absolutely the case. And, and my prayer is I want more of you, God. And to get more of you, I want to absolutely be partnered with you and take action on the things you put in my path so that you can trust me as somebody that you can provide opportunities for. And so, right. uh, yeah. Well, and you miss, the, you miss that opportunity. Yeah, that's right. right. You know, you don't, and that's why I pray for courage because I know I, you know, I need that. Um, I'll, t- I'll tell you one other just example of this that, that I think is, is funny is years ago, um, we were involved in a exchange program called the American Belarusian Relief Organization, where we brought a child uh, from Belarus to come live with us every, every summer. Uh, and then Lauriann actually went to Belarus for uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox Christmas uh, two or three times. Uh, she went over there to visit the orphanages and, you know, see these kids that came over in the, in the, in the summer. And uh, when we first joined it, I walked into a organizing meeting, all the people, and, and they said, uh, uh, okay, first we'd missed all the other meetings. This first meeting we'd come to, and they said, "Okay, last item on the agenda is we still need somebody to organize the vacation Bible school." And uh, I said, "Well, what's that entail?" And they said, "Well, we we need 
Russian speaking, because these kids didn't speak English, we need Russian speaking small group leaders for for this. And, you know, it's just going to be a, v- a vacation Bible school, somebody to lead prayer, somebody to lead songs. And uh, I said, all right, I'll do it. Uh, you know, that sounds easy and uh, fun. I, you know, I kind of I'm a teacher. You know, I, I, I could do this, you know, way to get involved and, and meet people and stuff. And two things happened. It's a time when you realize you, you, you're actually the answer to the prayer, which is kind of cool. We, we see God answer prayers, but it's rare because you know, these people have been praying that somebody would step up and do that. And God sent me in, in, in that case. But here's what here's what. So God, so God put me in a position where I had no skills. Right. I, I don't know how to. So here's all I did. I would ask people, hey, do you know any Russian speaking Christians? And they'd say, you know, I do. Huh. Uh, they'd say, there's this lady at work and uh, she speaks, she's from Russia and uh, she's a strong Christian. And I'd say, well, look, give me your phone number. And I would call her up. I'd introduce myself. I'd say, could we meet for coffee? And they'd say, yes. And I would sit down. I'd tell them what we're doing. And they would say, "This, they, everyone did this. They'd say, oh, I've been waiting for an opportunity, you know, to, to, to work with, you know, I, I left St. Petersburg as a child, you know, and, and, you know, and I had about six Russian speak people I'd never met before, um, who all came, one played the guitar, led the songs, you know, the others played games with the kids in their native language, and then taught them, you know, taught them about, about Jesus. And so it was not, I mean, it was an opportunity for me to see a couple of things. It's not about me, right. That, 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 that God is, orchestrating this and i can see him orchestrating it and i got to be a frontline witness to this and as you see those things you know your faith grows you're you're you see it's not just reading what god did a thousand years ago but seeing it in your in your own in your own life and so that kind of combination of prayer and then put yourself in a position where you have to rely on god and we don't want these experiences and these stories to stop when we turn 62 and a half and start you know, collecting social security. So as we wrap up this conversation and really kind of coming full circle back to the George Bernard Shaw quote and just really your philosophy on what does it now look like to live out the later years? Why is it that you think, you know, John Eldridge calls it the anti-shuffleboard philosophy? We don't, why do you think in our culture particularly, but I'm sure it's this way around the world, the dream is to stash away money until you turn 62 and a half and then I can play golf for the rest of my life. That's that's not the goal. The goal is to still be making an impact in people's lives and saying yes to leading Russian Bible studies in your 70s and your 80s and pouring into your kids' lives and continuing to live out every bit of purpose you can. Any final thoughts or just sort of parting advice for people who may be in a similar stage to you and, and wanting to live out the rest of their lives with purpose? Young men like younger men uh, like me who are working towards that and maybe shifting my thought process and philosophy about what retirement looks and, and looks like. Uh, but just any sort of final thoughts on that as we wrap up this episode? Yeah, I, I think it would be hard to become what Eldridge calls the the sage you know, at, at 65, if you didn't have that attitude at 35 and 45, it, it doesn't mean you can't change. But I think your ability and your desire to do that you know, begins earlier. In other words, what are you looking forward to? 
Um, have you ever seen that video Francis Chan does where he has that long rope? I have. Right. I love and, that. And so he has this just for those who haven't seen it, you know, Google it. It's, a, you know, it's Francis Chan rope exercise. I'll post it. Yeah, I'll post it in the show okay. notes below. Thank you. Uh, so he's got a rope that's safe, you know, 50 feet long. And he's he's talking to young people, I think, in the in the version I saw. And he says, pretend this rope goes on forever. This is eternity. And then on the last inch of the rope, at the very end, he's got a piece of blue tape around it that's maybe an inch long. And he says, this is your life on on Earth. And, you know, the rest of the rope is 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 the rest of your life. And he, and he talks about the first part of the blue tape. And he says, you know, we spend our whole lives preparing for the last eighth of an inch on the blue tape. Uh, and, you know, so we save our money and we, uh, you know, uh, we, we, you know, buy the, the forever home and, you know, so that we can enjoy the last, you know, we, we work the first 70 years of our life so we can enjoy the last, the last 20. Um, and, and, and his point in that is, and what about then all this white rope afterwards? Uh, and, and so I think, you know, it really is about that, that the world, you know, is teaching us, you know, in every commercial and everything that we see is about, you deserve this, you know, a life of, of relaxation and luxury and pleasure, um, you know, after you've worked really hard. And I think you know, for me, the key is when I realize life isn't about me, yes. you know, it's not about me. Uh, and so that can't be true that my life is about me building up reserves so that I'm secure and enjoying pleasure for the, for the rest of my life. It just, it just can't be. So I think it's about identity and, and my identity is, you know, and I'd go back to, you know, I think it's Mark 12 where the, the Levite, or the, the the lawyer asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? You know, and, and so I kind of put my life in those, in the, that passage is sort of the anchor. You know, Jesus says, well, the, you know, the, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So I, I sort of see, you know, my, my purpose is to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the way I live that out is love my neighbor as my, as myself. Uh, and 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 I sort of feel like my particular way to do that is to help people live abundantly. And so for the last you know twenty years or so, I've been been developing that that philosophy. And so I see retirement not much different than my working world, just less money coming in. You know, I teach leadership, communication, sales. You know, I I. A lot of what I do in my work is also what I do, just coaching people and helping people over a cup of coffee. Um, and so I don't see that my, you know, I'll have less of a burning need to get down to my desk and to call my clients and see what their needs are and see if I can meet their needs so I can send them an invoice. But I think what I do right now as a salesman is, I'm constantly trying to talk to my clients about what are they trying to do, what do they need, and how might I be able to help them achieve their goals. Uh, and I, I, I don't know what retirement will look like. I, I don't know whether I'll be healthy. I don't know whether I won't be healthy. You know, I mean, I, but you know, it's how will I spend my time serving my wife, my kids, my my neighbor uh, in retirement. 
and I think if I'm not healthy, there's still ways that I can do that. Um, and if I'm healthy, there's different ways that, that I'll do that. But, uh, you know, Lorianne says my life won't look any different. We just won't have any money coming in uh, when I when I retire. Um, so, yeah, I've got no desire for. I, I enjoy relaxing. I enjoy entertainment. I enjoy but I but I don't seek it. I, you know, I'm not I'm not looking for that. Well, that's a great final thought. And, and because you're not looking for that that speaks to the sage in you. So we honor you for that. I thank you for your time today. Uh, some incredible thoughts and wisdom. I, I thank you, Uncle Jock, for pouring some of that wisdom into me over the years. I, I just I remember a lot of conversations we've had at family functions, and I, I appreciate those, and I've internalized a lot of those uh, thoughts and things that you've had to share with me personally. And I just thank you for taking the time to show up publicly here for our audience and um, yeah, just appreciate your time this morning. So thank you very much. Well, you know, let me just say before I leave that, you know, it's it's fun for me to see what you and Melanie are doing much more intentionally, you know, I think than sometimes I I did uh, in there. So, you know, as I say that, you know, I don't think you can become a sage when you get old, you know, when you're in the fourth quarter, you know, if you weren't being sage-like in the second and third quarters as well. And so it's fun to see what you're doing. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun to get to have this conversation with you. So thanks a lot. I love what you're doing with, with fatherhood uh, and with the Faithful Father podcast. I appreciate that. Thank you again. For those of you listening, we appreciate you for giving some of your time to uh, just to spend with us. And uh, we appreciate you following the podcast, sharing it with, with other men and fathers who may need to hear what we have talked about specifically on this episode and other episodes of the Faithful Fatherhood podcast. So with that, we will sign off and see you next time. Take care, everyone. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to be a good